I mean, look, l- let's be honest, fuck ketchup, right? That's right. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibowitz. Shalom to you. And deputy editor of Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Today, we are ravenous. We are exceptionally hungry because we're bringing you a show largely based on food. Our guests include Italian Jewish food writer, and I love just, I just love saying this, Benedetta Guetta. She joined us to uh, talk about her first English language cookbook, Cooking a la Giudia. Then we have an interview with Barry Levinson, not the filmmaker Barry Levinson. Who we featured on the show a few weeks Who has been on the show. It's spelled a little differently, and he is the founder and curator of, and this is so close to my heart, the National Mustard Museum. You've been there. It's in Middleton, Wisconsin. It is home to the world's largest collection of mustards and mustard memorabilia. See, there are other mustard museums that just give you mustard, but he also includes mustard memorabilia. Associate producer Quinn Waller returns with another installment of her recurring feature, Cook Like a Jew. This week, she makes hummus with Liel Leibowitz. And finally, I like the way you pronounce it. Say it again. Hummus. 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 Very good. Hummus. Very good. I'm very proud of you. Hummus. And our Gentile of the Week is Eric Huang, the chef behind the wildly popular fried chicken pop-up restaurant, Pecking House. But before we get to all that, friends, I um, I have a report to deliver. Please. From my 25th reunion. Oh, my God. You do look a little hungover. <laughs> you can hear that I still don't have a full voice, bit, yeah. right? Yesterday, Monday, I had no voice because it began Thursday night. It continued until Sunday midday. Hold on, set, set the scene. So it's Thursday night. So 25th reunion was postponed. So this was 26th reunion. Now, I live in New Haven near my alma mater. So that means that I took- Just because you I don't think you've ever said it before in the right. show. You went to it Yale. It so happens to be the case that I went to Yale College. Right. okay. I was able to take a city bus, the 246 down Edgewood Avenue, from my home, 2.1 miles. Okay, now who are you wearing on that bus? Yale College. This was my look. I'm imagining Dustin Hoffman in the last shot of The Graduate. I'm imagining you in the back of the bus with a tuxedo. No. So Saturday night, everyone dresses for dinner. Like, you know, puts on a tie and, and a blazer or something. And people wear dresses. People dress nicely. But up until then, it's like, what kind of cash are you going for? Are you going for button-down, rolled-up sleeves, preppy cash? Some people dove into their closets for, like, a T-shirt from back in the day, like 1994 lightweight rowing. And you're um, going for, I'm 47 and I still have all my hair type of cash. Right. Yeah. But I wanted to be coy about it. So I actually wore a baseball cap, which I Aww. seldom do. So what I did what was did I the had- say? For, so for I, that moment where you just take it off and like casually so, sort of spin your head around? Yes. Let it yes, all on. Yes, oh, yes, I, love I it. will own every bit of this, right? So I was wearing a pair of like border length shorts, Hurley brand shorts that I once bought in Seattle with a, you know, short sleeve button down. And then, of course, the lanyard with my name on it. And then I had a hat. I think it was my Ezra Academy hat where my kids go to school. You know, nice blue baseball cap. And then I disheveled hair with wings flying out the side so people could tell there was a lot of hair. But they didn't know if there was hair on top, right? right? I'm still being coy. <laughs> still being coy about this, right? Until at some point midway in, let's say, that evening's festivities, five gin and tonics in. When you hear the spin doctors play <laughs> two princes, two princes, you're like, oh, here. Right. No, it was, it was, uh, it's when I walk by someone from my year who used to make me feel inferior. And at that moment, I felt the need to like pull off the hat and shake out, <laughs> shake, shake out the locks. A little tip of the cap for them. Also, it's funny because what happens at 25? Because five when you're like, oh, those people have gone like a little crazy. 20, 10's like, okay, you're boring. 25, 25 you know, 15 and 20 people it's are like bringing where their your kids. where your kids going to college. 15 and 20 people are bringing their kids. 25, where are your, like, I definitely talked to a few classmates whose kids are now going to start right. at Yale College. 
a lot of second marriages. People at 25 bring say, 25 second is, spouse. Is a, is a divorce year. Yeah, 25 is like <laughs> people bring their second spouse, people. And, you know, I will say I had some really deep conversations with people about, you know, transitions in life, people who the first career didn't work out, the first family didn't work out. And people come with, people come very raw. And it's actually a very, there's really nothing like being on the your old freshman quadrangle, three or four drinks in, talking to someone you haven't seen for 20 or 25 years about what didn't go well. My writer panel, the panel I was on, was moderated by Katie Porter, which was hilarious. Like she, did she bring than, the, the whiteboard of truth? Right. Like <laughs> rather than foregrounding her on a panel, she agreed to moderate this one, <laughs> and she was asking us questions about writing. And it felt like really, Katie, we just want to hear from you about you know your but whiteboard of truth. What's your process, Mark? Yeah, what's your <laughs> when so, you make important work uh, that changes the country? Like what's your process? Right. I don't know. It was just great. It was really nice. Um, I think that we have to turn now to a bigger question of how people assemble, how people gather, how they do it in the woods. I spent the weekend doing a thing that other than reading and drinking and a few other pursuits that a gentleman shan't share in public is the one earthly activity I enjoy more than any other. Camping. To me, waking up in the morning... Not to some crazed homeless guy saying that Martians have invaded his butt. True story. That actually happened. In your, that happened in your apartment. Nor, nor to, yeah, yeah, that really happened. Inside uh, your apartment. <laughs> when you woke up. <laughs> nor, nor to a guy taking. That's how weird the Upper West Side has gotten. No, no, listen, listen. <laughs> nor to and a actually, guy. It's like the Jew bird in the Bernard Malibu story. You just entered the apartment. They don't know how he got in. Sorry, sorry. sorry. Continue this or continue, nor please. Nor to a guy taking a machete to a garbage can, which also <laughs> happened on my block. But instead, the gentle frappings of a downy woodpecker going, knock, knock. Knock, knock. And you just walk out and there you are and you play football and baseball and then you take a long hike and then you sit and grill meat and drink while the stars gently shine. So this above. is with your son at his school's camping and, trip? And my daughter and my wife and, and oh, everyone a few went. of our your friends. Dog, it was the Heschel camping trip and it's the greatest event of the year. To walk in that forest at eight in the morning on Shabbat and hear the angelic, the cherubic voices of Jewish kids. You mean praying seraphic. Shachris. Seraphic. Seraphic. Seraphic shachris. Praying shachris from all over the forest. I mean, man, there's there's nothing else. There's nothing else I need. I'm good. I want to live in a Liel, forest, in a tent. I feel on some deep level you know that you are trolling me because as I've told you in the past, there is nothing. I mean, I'm anti-camping anyway, not because I don't love the outdoors. I just don't like sleeping on dirt. You just like them in very small portions. I like them. Very, I mean, I love, I love the outdoors within reason. You know, sometimes you like the fun-sized outdoors. Camping's a bit de trop. It's like, what are you trying to prove? But as my wife always, I mean, Sid is is an absolute fanatic yeah, on this is. question, and she I doesn't know. go around picking Jew Gentile fights. That's my role in the marriage. <laughs> but on this, if she hears with, if she Sid can be outdoors in a plaza and from across the plaza, if she hears the word camping or sleeping bag, she will run She's over at the plaza, throttle the person, and say, Jews don't camp. She, there is no more fundamental belief in her. But and so, we have Jews in our neighborhood know, who camp. Except, and she says to them either, well, then you're not Jewish or you don't camp. Except for that 40-year right. period in our history <laughs> in which we literally camped. She feels we camped enough. And it was pretty okay. you know, significant. But this is amazing because your children at a Jewish day school have a school-wide camping trip. Mm -hmm. Like literally changing the narrative in front of us. It's something to behold. I will 100%. say that I could get into camping 
because there is such good stuff. Like you get the Yeti cooler that plays the music and the this. Like there's oh, so much like stuff. Yeah, like I believe you are the one who taught me the term glamping, Stephanie. Yeah, so I mean, I've never wanna, done it. Right, right. You I've guys, seen to be it. clear, you could get into it, but you're not into it. I'm not into it. But like what I could get into is like, okay, so here's what you need. You need the this. Like my brother-in-law takes my nephew camping all the time, and they have all these cool things. How cool is that? You have your whole spot in the garage okay. for all your camping. So stuff. this, so this, this time around, it's like I really. Back in Israel, when I camped, I would sleep on the ground like a real freaking animal. Like, this time around, I was like, you know what? You, would, you know in like Disney when the little bluebirds wake you up? The scorpions would wake you up with just their little... <laughs> That's right. They'd say, Leo, it's time to get dressed. This time around, I said, you know what? I'm I'm in my 40s. I need a little bit more comfort. I'm going to invest in one of those mattresses. So I go to REI. And they're like, oh, the mattress, it's $600. It's like, I'm not paying $600 per camping mattress. Give me, like, the next best thing. You were negotiating so, like, with them at REI? I was, I was jewing them <laughs> down. Jewing REI I was down. Saying, no, I'm not paying retail for this. It's like, okay, here's a $250. Quinn's on our computer finding the $200 mattress like, you know right now. I'll buy the $200 you mattress. You just look like a rich and Jew. I, I, and I walked away saying, like, what a what a douchebag I am. for just What a douche canoe for even considering for this. For getting it in your canoe. I had the best freaking sleep of my life on that thing. Like, I would like to put that thing on the floor of my apartment. <laughs> it was an amazing, amazing thing. I would camp with you guys. We're going to do this, and we're going to record the whole thing, and it's going to be great. Listeners camping, Jewish or Goyish, call us, 914-570-4869, or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Share with us your favorite or least favorite camping story. And, you know, I don't know, give me advice. Sell me and Stephanie on our camping and glamping futures. Our next guest is someone I am so incredibly excited about. Her first English language cookbook is just tremendous, tremendous. She is Benedetta Guerra, which is so much fun to say. She's an Italian food writer who's contributed to Tablet in the past. Her first English language cookbook, Cooking, get ready for really horrible pronunciation, Cooking alla Giudia provides a deep dive into the fascinating and nearly forgotten culinary history of Italian Jews. You're going to learn things about the secret Jewish history of some surprisingly popular dishes in this book and get some great, great recipes. Benedetta, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm jealous because you and Liel have already met. We have. And that was like such an exciting meeting. I mean, we met in the, in the happiest place on earth, Los Angeles, California, on a beautiful sun-washed corner where Benedetta has what I think, unbiasedly, is the best fucking cafe in Los Angeles, in the greater Los Angeles area, in California. Why not? That's very sweet. Enjoying delicious coffee and enjoying tremendously good sandwiches. But before we get to any of this, I want to go right to the beginning. So here you are, you're a child. What's food like in your house? And what entry, if any, do you have into the kitchen? 
I was raised in a fairly Jewish household, not a super religious or super orthodox one, but fairly religious house. Uh, my mother was a stay- is and was a stay-at-home mom. And the one thing we had to fight over and over again throughout my childhood was the ownership of the kitchen. Because I always liked to cook. For some reason, I always really enjoyed it. But that was, you know, my mother's main job. It was always like a bit of a fight, which, you know, sometimes was worse, sometimes was better, to decide who would actually get to cook, uh, who would get to enjoy the kitchen. So for very many years of my life, I would say all the way until I was old enough to move out, I had to contend the kitchen uh, with its rightful owner, namely my mother, so that I could actually, you know, pursue my passion and cook. However, that has also been an incredibly valuable experience because my mother taught me everything I know as I wrote in my in the dedication to my book. And she's been literally the best guide I could have possibly wanted to have to, you know, learning about uh, Jewish cuisine, about Italian cuisine and about cooking in general. So instead of cooking, you do the second hardest thing relating to food. You start writing about it on your blog. Yes, I did. So actually, it all started with cooking, really, because I I was teaching cooking classes with my friend Manuel back in Milan in those days. And as time went by, we decided to start a blog to collect our recipes. And what was funny is that we never planned on it being a Jewish blog or anything specifically Jewish. But as we started writing about what we cook in our household, which a lot of the time was, you know, normal Italian food, but a lot of the time was Jewish food. There was all of this interest from people that, random people, Italians, that were interested in learning more about Jewish food. And so at some point we found ourselves with all of this pressure to tell more about our holidays, to tell more about our rules, to explain to people what's kosher, what's not. And without having a real authority on the topic, because like I said, I grew up religious ish like not super orthodox or anything so it's not like i'm the best person to talk about jewish things not necessarily the most qualified but we found ourselves with all of these readers that were really curious about uh, our culture and so we had to start answering those questions and that's how we ended up being at some point the place in italy where people went when they wanted to learn about uh, jewish cooking before before i met you before i read the book if you asked me to talk about Italian Jewish cooking, I would have said, well, you know, I know Carciofi alla Judea, like that's a famous Roman dish, the artichoke and everything. Um, that's maybe it. You know, I think most people listening to us right now imagine a very small community, so small that it probably has no proud culinary tradition of its own. And, and your book proved me wrong big time. T- tell us a little bit about the history of Jewish Italian community, cuisine, culture, etc. Yeah, so as you said, most people, especially in the US, but actually most people also in Italy can go their entire life without ever coming across an Italian Jew. They don't necessarily know we exist. Like when I say I'm a Jew and I come from Italy, people often tell me, oh, are there Jews in Italy? I'm like, yes, there are. I'm sorry, every Italian I meet seems Jewish to me. <laughs> it's so inherent. <laughs> that's, because, that's because we're all obsessed with food. So that's <laughs> the trait that you're confusing because, you know, Jews are obsessed with food, Italians are obsessed with food, and you never know which is which, if it's Jew or Italian. But no, jokes aside, the Italian Jewish community is actually the oldest Jewish community in the diaspora. It's the, you know, it came into existence way, way, way back, around the 66 CE, before anyone else. <laughs> So, and Italian Jews have this also this specific trait that they're not Sephardi and they're not Ashkenazi in the sense that these were Jews that originally came 
during the Jewish Roman Wars as slaves to Italy. Now, in terms of numbers, the numbers are not exciting. There's very few of us. But in terms of uh, authenticity of the tradition and richness and the value of our culinary tradition, it is a very, very valuable and interesting um, story to tell because there are just so many recipes that people don't know of. I found myself stuck putting the artichokes on the cover of my book because my publisher really wanted the artichokes because, you know, that is the recipe that people know Italian juice for. But there is so much more to it than that. And it's unfortunate that people don't know about it. That's why I set out to write a book. Jews in various parts of the world adapt local recipes to, to be Jewish, right? To not use pork and things like that. But... There are other ways which sort of Jews shape the broader culinary world of of these countries that they find themselves in. Can you talk a little bit about how Jews actually influenced Italian cooking? Including, if I may, the absolute greatest pasta ever, hands down. (laughs) Tell us about the orchiette. I was blown away when when you revealed the secrets of of the orchiette. Orchiette are just these really famous Italian pasta shape. They're tiny and like they're half circles of dough, I'm going to say. You know, people in Italy claim that they come from Apulia, which is this region in the south, and they're super proud of them. It's like one of those things that you're like, yes, it's ours. We have it in the south. It's so authentic and traditional. I'm like, I'm sorry, but no. Orecchiette originally came from southern France, and they were a Jewish thing. It was the Jews that brought this shape of pasta to Italy. I we don't I don't think there's many religions and many other cultures in which we eat the ears of one of our enemy. Uh, when you think about it, it's Purim. It's a Jewish thing to eat the ears of somebody else. So the ear-shaped pasta orchiette is the original hamantaschen? I don't know. I'm going to not, not going to go as far as saying that it is the original hamantaschen, but it Maybe. is 100% connected to that story. And we know it because there are still villages in Puglia where the root of the name still shines through the world. So it's it's actually for sure a Jewish dish that came from southern France. And also eggplant parmesan, right? Like we have Jews to thank for that. Tell us how. Uh, yeah, so that, again, that's a bit of a stretch, but, uh, but, but truth be told. So Italians for generations and generations, for centuries, didn't even know exactly what eggplants were. They thought that they were this odd vegetable that might have been poisonous. They truly thought that eggplants were poisonous. Just like my daughter. <laughs> um, they brought them off, uh, and we have you know, written recordings of this information, as food for dogs and for Jews. And it was <laughs> substantially the Jews of that established in Southern South Italy and had learned to cook eggplants from the Arabs, you know, from Spain and then from the Arabs that brought eggplants to Italy and eventually taught Italians that they were indeed a food and they were delicious if you knew what to do with them. So while we don't, we cannot exactly claim eggplant parmigiana, we can by all means claim eggplant as a Jewish ingredient in the sense that Italians would have never consider trying it uh, unless the Jews brought it to the country. And now you've gone from being someone who documents these migrations of, of foods and sensibilities and tastes in a book that's truly wonderful to someone who lives that reality herself. You, you now reside, as we mentioned, in, in sunny Los Angeles, California. I wonder if you share my frustration coming from a very different part of the world, going to the store and looking for what I thought were staples, like, you know, 
vegetables that actually have flavors. What's what? What do you miss about kind of the tastes of Italy? What what's food like for you here in this country? The one thing that I obsess with is tomatoes, and oh. I mean it sounds it's it sounds as cliche as it can possibly be, but damn tomatoes in this country taste like nothing. Like they literally taste like water. Even in sunny California, where people think we have all of the you know heirloom variety and like the all of this nonsense and organic and whatever, it's it really is not the same. Even even my boyfriend who lives who has lived here for over twenty years, when we're back in Italy, he acknowledges that the tomatoes of Ahmed, who is the guy that sells them to me at the market in Italy, the tomatoes of Ahmed you can't find in California. They just are not the same. But on the other hand, like good good luck getting a good Arby's sandwich in. Rome. Correct. You know, you can't have it all. Uh, it's one of those things. You, you have to compromise. You wrote an amazing article for Tablet a few years back. It was called How to Make Kosher Prosciutto. And it's about geese. And you say that in Italy, they're nicknamed, geese are named the pork of the Jews. So Correct. can you tell us a little bit about the role of, of goose meat and, and what kosher prosciutto? I mean, like, that's a crazy concept. I love it. Actually, back in the days, not even now, um, especially in the Jewish northern communities of Italy, such as Venice, and partly in the ones in Lombardia, which is my region, where the region where Milan is, Jews used to, um, do you say in English, farm goods a lot, because uh, these were areas where the land was good for raising geese, and goose was readily available fairly inexpensive. And again, it could be used for many things uh, as an alternative to pork. When you think about it, even in Ashkenazi cuisine, you make uh, chicken fat or, or duck fat to, to fry goods instead of uh, butter. So there were these this, uh, sort of German Jews that came to Northern Italy. They established the usage of goods instead of pork, mostly instead of lard for frying. And Jews started to use intensively goods since it was readily available and, and the place was good to farm it instead of pork. And so, yes, goods came to be known as the pork of the Jews because Jews couldn't have pork, but they used it exactly like pork. Now, there's two people left in the country who really know how to do it, that do it as a regular thing, say once a year or twice a year. And, you know, when those people are going to be gone, and you can imagine they're not exactly in their prime youth, these traditions risk being lost. So while these are traditions that have a really long history, I wasn't entirely sure whether they would have a long future. Hence, I felt the need to document it. So as of right now, people my age don't cook with goose a lot. Even when I wanted to do it, if you wanted kosher goose in Italy, either you do what I did, uh, and as the story has it on tablet, we have a little farmhouse outside Milan and you raise your own goose, which seems impractical for everyone else in the country. They need to ask for goose kosher from France. And that has to come from a long way and costs a lot of money. So it gives you a sense of the fact that that recipe is not going to have a long life because people can't really make it anymore. Uh, so most Jews in Italy today would cook a lot more with oil than they would with, uh, you know, goose fat or similar uh, byproducts. Kids today. Yeah, you know, like such a disappointment. Uh. <laughs> no, so, so that's how I felt it was important to document all of this stuff because you never know in one generation or two what's going to be left of it. 
Well, that's why we're so grateful for the work you're doing. The new cookbook is Cooking a la Judia. The website is labna.it and everyone can follow along with you at both of those places. Benedetta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you guys. Fun fact about me, I, your host, Mark Oppenheimer, am a mustard fanatic. I like mustard in all of its forms, in all of its flavors. In another life, I would have been a moustardier. I had the exquisite privilege of talking with Barry Levinson. He is the founder of the National Mustard Museum in Middleton, Wisconsin. He curates the world's largest collection of mustards and mustard memorabilia. And I got to hear about his transition from being a important lawyer to being a, what I'm calling a, a moustardier and eventually hosting the Worldwide Mustard Competition. It was one of my favorite conversations ever, and I'm thrilled to invite you to listen to my conversation with Barry Levinson. Mr. Levinson, before we get to the Mustard Museum that you founded, I want to go back to the beginning. When did you first realize you loved mustard? Wow. Uh, Certainly growing up, we always had mustard in the house. And I certainly remember going to Fenway Park with my dad and getting a Fenway Frank with mustard. And also my boyhood friend, uh, Michael, and I, I think we were like nine years old and we made disappearing ink and it had mustard in it. And we actually sent it to the U.S. Patent Office and they sent it back saying, why are you bothering us? (laughs) (laughs) Also, I do remember that Michael and I, whenever we got the hiccups, we would do a spoonful of mustard and that would get rid of the hiccups. But I think what really started everything was 1986 and the Boston Red Sox losing the World Series. That was just devastating. Of course, you know, growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts, being, of course, a diehard Red Sox fan, I had never seen the Red Sox win a World Series. They came so close in 1967. 1986, I was already out here in Wisconsin. I was working as a lawyer for the State Department of Justice. But of course, with the Red Sox in the World Series, I was very excited. They came so close. Uh, Again, they were one pitch away from winning it in game six. They then lost in game seven. I was devastated. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was very depressed. I couldn't sleep. So I went to an all-night supermarket at 2.30 in the morning. It was October 28, 1986. I said, I just need to walk around. I need something to take my mind off of baseball. You know, I was I was very depressed. So it was 2.30 in the morning. I was pushing an empty cart up and down the aisles. And I said, you know, I need a hobby. I need to collect something. So I turned down the condiment aisle. I remember walking past the ketchups, the olives, the relishes, the pickles, the mayos, nothing. Suddenly I was in front of the mustards and I heard a voice that said, if you collect us, they will come. That did it. To be clear, 
at that point, you liked mustard, but you were I not. Did. Nobody, your friends didn't know you up until 1986 as as mustard guy. No, not at all. I mean, I was uh, an assistant attorney general. I was arguing cases at the state supreme court. I loved my job. You know, I never thought that I would just quit. How soon thereafter did you quit to devote your life to mustard? Well, it was uh, it was five years later. What happened? That night, uh, October 28, 1986, it was actually 2.30 in the morning, when I heard the voice, I, I think I grabbed about 10 different mustards off the shelf, and I said, I'm going to collect mustards, and I have no idea why. It was, it was my therapy, I guess. I was going to do it. I figured, there's no way I'm going to quit my job, although I got another sign six months later. It was, uh, let's see, April 20. 1987, just six months later. And at that time, I think I had maybe 70 or 80 jars of mustard in my collection. It was just in my basement. It was just something I did. But I got another sign. I was very fortunate to be arguing a case at the U.S. Supreme Court. It was Griffin versus Wisconsin. And what happened on the way over to the court, I was staying at the Hyatt and I was running a little late. So I was running down the hallway. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye, a discarded room service tray on which was a little jar of mustard. And, you, you know, if you, if you order room service at a hotel, when you're done with it, you know, what do you do? You don't want the dirty dishes in your room. So you put it outside and it had not been opened. The seal was still on it. So I'm facing this ethical dilemma, I think. Would it be theft for me to steal, to take that mustard where the hotel was not expecting to get it back, but they could reuse it? Right. And keep in mind, of course, you're an officer of the court. I mean, there's a high standard. You have to comport yourself at all times. At all times. Yes. As someone of the utmost integrity. Exactly. So I think I did, you know, I didn't have time to research the issue thoroughly. So I think I did what every good lawyer would have done. I looked around, saw that no one was watching. And I took it. I just took it. I didn't have time to go back to my room. So I brought it with me to the Supreme Court. And did you win the case? I did. And I argued that case with uh, that jar of mustard in my left hand pocket, pocket, in my pocket. I think that was, it was five to four. But I think, you know, if you know anything about your Supreme Court history, you'll realize that this was poetic justice because this is the court that gave us Felix Frankfurter right? That also gave us Chief Justice Warren Berger with a jar of mustard in my pocket. I knew I couldn't lose. And today, what has this grown into? You have, it has its own building, right? The museum is in Middleton, Wisconsin. It's a nonprofit and we have more than 6,300 mustards from all over the world. We have mustards from about 85 different countries We want to make people more aware, not just of mustard as a condiment, but mustard as an art form, because we we just published a book, it was about a year ago, called The Art of Mustard. And this book has pictures of over 600 of the exhibits in the collection, and not just jars of mustard, but mustard pots, old mustard tins, Mustard art, the history of mustard, I think, is an art form because mustard goes back centuries. You know, it's not one of these condiment come latelys. So (laughs) we promote mustard not just because it's a healthy condiment, it's a tasty condiment, but it has great 
culture and history behind it. I believe the the Yiddish term is yichus. It has it has heritage. It does it has, exactly it has breeding. Yeah, is it Middleton's premier tourist destination? Or it you- is. We get uh, thousands of visitors every year. Admission is free. And what percentage of your budget? What is your annual budget? Our annual budget is around $90,000 right now, although we're trying to increase that because we have all kinds of things we want to do where we host the worldwide mustard competition. We've been doing that for about 25 years. That's where mustards from all over the world are sent to the museum to be judged blind uh, by panels of food experts in 17 different categories because mustard is not a one-dimensional condiment. Wait, say more about that. How, what are its other, what, what do you mean it's not a one-dimensional condiment? Well, you know, there's not just, you know, like tomato ketchup, you know, what kinds of ver- uh, varieties are there? But in terms of mustard, you know, you've got honey mustard, you've got yellow mustard, you've got Dijon mustard, you've got herb mustards, you've got uh, deli mustards that are very specific in terms of what they are. On the one hand, it seems to me a very Jewish condiment. It's not dairy. It's parv. You can put it on anything. And corned beef wants to take mustard, it seems to me. It does. Corned beef, pastrami, you got to have mustard. you got to have mustard, right? And it's, I would say, preferably a dark kind of, you know, thick stone ground mustard. Exactly. uh, With a kind of good mouth feel. Maybe with horseradish. Maybe with with horseradish, yeah. And no disrespect to French's, but that doesn't seem to me the mustard that you want for all this. On the other hand, and, you know, but this is, this is, of course, the thick, you know, cruel irony of Jewish history is we're so, our culture is so interwoven with the cultures of peoples who have oppressed us. German culture and German cuisine is all about the mustard, I feel like. Yes. And so I feel like there's this kind of tension there, right? That on the one hand, it's both very Jewish, also very German. And I'm thinking of this because you're from Wisconsin, which must be a kind of Garden of Eden of of mustards because the German culture is so interested in mustard. Is that, am I right about that? Yes, but there's also um, a very lively Jewish community, you know, certainly in Milwaukee. Milwaukee is very well known for that. So when you go to a deli, and there are still some delis left in, uh, in Wisconsin, there's a good Jewish deli in Milwaukee. Madison used to have one, but it no longer does. There's a small deli that's grown up on the east side here. But let's face it, if you if you go to a real deli, you've got to have mustard on a corned beef sandwich or a pastrami sandwich. This is something that is uh, everywhere, no matter where in the U.S. you go, a really good deli from most people means a Jewish deli. That's what it is. And there's going to be mustard on the table. There has to be. I think that's right. And I feel like Goulden's is sort of the normative standard mustard that they would have. Well, I know that we we grew up uh, with Goulden's and it, it's uh, Goulden's. It started in New York City. I believe I even had the street. I went to the street where it grew up. It's now part of ConAgra. What are you going to do? Look, Big Mustard has taken over a lot of independent mustards, I would think. It has, but there are also a lot of very small gourmet mustards, uh, artisan mustards as well, both here and over in France, actually all over the world. At the World Mustard Competition, we have received mustards from Sweden, from uh, Romania, of course, from France, from England. Really, it's it's universal. Well, and this is a great place to end, which is I have, you know, I've never, I, I'm a lifelong mustard lover, but I'm not a mustard connoisseur. And since I have you here, I do want to know, you know, for the, the person who's looking, as you did in 1986, to broaden out into more mustards, to make it more a part of her or his palate, 
What are some good mustards to look for? How do we think about them? Are there particular grocery stores that stock them? Is there a good website? How do we get beyond kind of Goulden's, French's, Grey Poupon as mustard lovers? Well, I probably the best website is mustardmuseum.com. The gift shop and internet store, which is separate from the museum, sells more different mustards than any place in the world. I mean, we've got mustards, some small companies from France that make some wonderful mustards. We've got mustards really here in the United States that are really quite spectacular. You know, they're small companies. In terms, you were mentioning ketchup, you know, which is kind of the arch enemy. I mean, look, let's be honest, fuck ketchup, right? That's right. And also, (laughs) according to the National Condiment Research Council annual report, ketchup is now the leading cause of childhood stupidity in America. It's that and TikTok. I mean, between <laughs> right. ketchup and TikTok, it's like civilization is doomed. So fuck ketchup, but give us some mustard. Okay, look, I'm going to go to mustardmuseum.com. I'm going to spend a bucket load of money. I can only imagine, but how can I spend that money wisely? Give me a few brands of mustards I haven't heard of that are just going to transport me mustard-wise. Well, there is a company called Daddy Cook's. And they have won a grand champion award for their curry mustard, which is really spectacular. There's also a wonderful deli mustard. It's called Kelly's. And it's it's a horseradish mustard that's fabulous for a deli sandwich. You'll also find mustards from a French company called Edmund Fallot, F-A-L-L-O-T. And they make a terrific walnut mustard that was also a grand champion And uh, 25 years ago or 22 years ago, my wife and I were on the Oprah Winfrey show tasting mustards with Oprah, and that was her favorite mustard. It's really a wonderful mustard, Uh, makes a great salad dressing because mustard can be made for sauces, whatever. Now, there's a curious thing. You talked about being the, you know, a great Jewish condiment. However, for Passover, if you are Ashkenazic Jew, you're not supposed it's to kidney have oat. mustard it's is kidney, kidney oat. oat. Oh kidney my oat. goodness. Exactly. However, if you are Sephardic, it's okay, which is why I convert to Sephardism <laughs> <laughs> just before Pesach. I always now, convert. <laughs> I was pleased to hear that you're married because I do feel like this kind of obsession often is something to be found in a bachelor lifestyle. Yeah. Um, do you, do you, do you have children? Uh, I have an adopted child. He's 34 years old and I have a grandchild who's now, who just turned two. Do you see either of them going? I mean, if, you know, God willing, you live a long time, you prosper, you're helming the mustard museum you know, for another 30 years, but should the day come when you can't, is your child or grandchild, do you see in them mustard leadership potential? Uh, I, I said uh, to my son, you know, who's now 34, I said, Matt, this could be all yours. He said, thanks, dad. <laughs> said, but no, thanks. So look, this has been a privilege and an honor. I would like to volunteer my services as a judge for the next uh, mustard championship. I don't know when that's going to be, you know, look, I don't have any culinary experience. It's just purely, if you have room on the judging panel for just an amateur, for just a, a mustard lover, someone who has passion, who doesn't have training or knowledge, but passion, just let me know. I will. Barry Levinson, you invite us to go to uh, mustardmuseum.com. Yes. All I can say is uh, stay spicy and, and keep up the good work. We'll do that, Mark. It's a pleasure talking to you. And hasta la mustard.
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. Last week, we talked about the mild controversy, the Twitterversy, over Bradley Cooper's makeup in the new Leonard Bernstein biopic, in which they basically give him a larger nose so that he looks like Leonard Bernstein. We all thought it was fine. Uh, We got a letter from our listener, Rachel, who writes... While talking about Bradley Cooper's Leonard Bernstein film, you were listing off other famous Jewish Leonards for him to portray, but you forgot Leonard Nimoy. Please come back to Philadelphia soon so I can finally see you live. P.S. It's really difficult to get a reservation for Zahav, so if you can hook a sister up, that would be great. Or I'll just try again soon. Yours, Rachel. I like this. It's sort of like, I love your show, but really what I want is it's for a reservation. You, <laughs> it's for a reservation. Like, that's, all, that's all we want also. <laughs> <laughs> it's a reservation it's of. Um, little correction for one of you. I don't remember which of you said this, but I'm not going to own it. Hi, enjoyed the podcast, of course. But I am compelled to point out that the restaurant mentioned today was Bernstein on Essex, not Bernstein on Broadway. Correct. This is a big oi. But I like alliteration. So sue me. <laughs> I like alliteration. <laughs> Best wishes, Nahama Kanner, native Lower East Side gal who had lots of fun there during many visits. Nahama, did you ever hang with my wife, Sid, also of the Lower East Side? Did you go to Seward Park High School on the Lower East Side and have my father-in-law as your chemistry teachers? Tell us more, Nahama. Here's another letter. Hi, you all. This is you-A-L-L, like unorthodox all. We pronounce it you all. 
Hi, you all. I'm writing from Wyoming, Pennsylvania to offer a mazel tov to a former Gentile of the week from episode 236, Amanda Hornberger, whom Mark interviewed when he was here on the Jewish Book Council book tour in 2019, has just been named Chief Operating Officer of the Jewish Federation of Reading and Berks County. She was a great program director, and we know she'll be a terrific COO. Could it be that having Gentile of the week on her resume helped get the job? Who knows? Couldn't have hurt. Anyway, a heartfelt mazel tov to Amanda from her friends at home. Shalom, Paul Delphin. We're getting people reservations. We're getting people jobs. This is a full service Everything. pod. We are basically nothing we can't do. Concierge to the world. We're, we're a one-stop shop Jewish continuity machine. We love your mail. Please write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. Around Passover, you heard from our associate producer, Quinn Waller, as she learned to make chicken soup. She's back again today, learning to make hummus. This is now a recurring segment hosted by Quinn, and we're calling it Cook Like a Jew. Here's Quinn. Any memories I have of hummus are, in a word, bad. Like most Midwestern kids in the last couple decades, with moms that might have been a little granola, hummus was a health food to me. My mom would make these hummus sandwiches with super bland hummus and cucumbers and carrots and wilted bean sprouts on that really gross whole grain bread that has like 17 different kinds of seeds in it, you know, where there's more seed than bread. It's something that my mom would buy from the granola store and something I refused to touch. It was not a fun food. When I got older, Saber brand hummus came into my life and that was slightly better. It was just fine, not something I craved. Because as any hummus devotee knows, Sabra hummus isn't exactly real hummus. I discovered this the summer after college when I suddenly found myself hanging out with a bunch of Israelis. These guys could cook and they made a lot of hummus. Unlike my mom's store-bought health food hummus, this hummus was freaking incredible. It was a completely different food than what I had been eating before. But after the summer ended, I lost my hummus hookup and I couldn't stand to live a hummusless life. So I set out to make it myself, except every recipe I tried fell flat. All my attempts were missing something. I needed to bring in an expert, someone to teach me how to do what I wasn't grasping from reading recipes. I needed to learn from someone. So I called up our in-house Israeli, Liel Leibovitz, to teach me to make the hummus that I've been dreaming of. Hello, Quinn. Hi. And welcome to the hummus kitchen. By the way, I'm going to be totally obnoxious, uh-huh. and I'm only going to pronounce it hummus. Hummus? Hummus. With the most guttural yeah, as you possible, should. As, as well I should. As you should. Okay, so before we get any further, I will not be pronouncing it hummus. I will be pronouncing it hummus. I am American. It is obnoxious if I pronounce it like hummus. It's like if I said Paris or Barcelona. So with that out of the way, Liel and I dove into a ginormous pot of chickpeas. 
Liel the legume guru, leguru, if you will, and me, the willing disciple. This is the Bulgarian strain, highly praised by humusiers. If you use really, really large chickpeas, what are you gonna have when you cook them? You're gonna have a bunch of really disgusting shells floating above, and you're gonna spend a lot of time just de-shelling them. Liel was right. I bought the wrong kind of chickpeas when I made this last week, and I did in fact spend, no joke, two and a half hours shelling chickpeas. So, do not buy any old chickpeas. Buy dried Bulgarian chickpeas, also called Kabuli chickpeas. For the purposes of science, Liel had me try store-bought hummus, or as he calls it, the impure version of this. Everything in Judaism is about purity and impurity. Now you're gonna eat the fake version. This is $7.99 hummus. This is upscale. Now, cherish that flavor. Remember this, because very soon you're gonna be eating something completely different. Nice, right? It's fine. It's a little, it just doesn't taste as much, I feel like. Correct. Yeah. And thus we embarked on what would become a spiritual journey. I will commence the Zen of, of the hummus preparation. These chickpeas have been soaking since about 3 p.m. yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, they've been soaking for 24 hours. You know, with beans, you have to soak them overnight, which reduces cooking time. Do you do the baking soda thing? I have cooked them for about an hour and a half with no baking soda, and then I added just a little bit of baking soda. This is a huge controversy. There are people who have come to blows in Israel over the question of whether or not it is permissible. I am very agnostic on this question. It is one of very few topics on which I have no strong opinions. Time for some science. So baking soda, or bicarbonate of soda if you're outside the U.S., is alkaline. Pure water has a pH of 7, and baking soda has a pH of 8. If you've ever made a bean recipe that called for boiling a pot of beans with a lemon in it, you might have noticed that it takes the beans much longer to cook and that the final result is not as creamy as it could be. Acidic environments prevent beans from softening completely. However, alkaline environments are the perfect bean biome. Baking soda makes the starchy bean skin more soluble, thus allowing more liquid to penetrate the cells of the bean resulting in a creamier, faster-cooked legume. However, baking soda can also have a weird metallic aftertaste, so you want to be careful not to go overboard. A half teaspoon of baking soda per cup of dried chickpeas will do the job. I'm actually particularly excited to be cooking this with you. Did you know that hummus most likely was A, mentioned in the Bible, in fact, the first ever mention of it anywhere, be the first person to have eaten hummus in recorded history was Ruth, the first ever convert to Judaism. Oh my gosh! Mm -hmm. In the book of Ruth, Boaz says to Ruth, Tivliet pitech b'chomitz, which you may translate, dip your bread, although pitech pat lechem, which is Hebrew for a slice of bread, also sounds a lot like pita, which I always find kind of lovely. B'chomitz, chomitz is Hebrew for vinegar. Uh, so you may believe that Boaz, addressing Ruth among all the other working men in the field that hot day, said to people, hey, here, have some ciabatta dipped in balsamic vinegar, because that's what 
working people in the field eat, or you could surmise, as many Israeli biblical scholars have, that chometz is the correct word for hummus because the Hebrew word for the actual chickpea is chimtza. And so that, uh, according to some, is the first mention ever. And it is eaten by the delightful Ruth. The final thing I'd like to share with you today is that according to not altogether kooky scientists, hummus is actually responsible for, drumroll please, civilization. Because it contains huge amounts of tryptophan, the same uh, ingredient that's in Turkey that makes you sleepy. And the theory is, and this is by neuroscientists, uh, not, you know, tinfoil hat wearing uh -huh. maniacs, is that the ability of hummus to make you so kind of docile actually enabled the construction of hierarchical civilizations because people were calming down and following orders. I like that. I'm going to go with that. Eaten by Ruth, responsible for civilization. If this hasn't convinced you to make your own hummus, I don't know what will. So how do we get from a pile of chickpeas to non-granola store hummus? This is the part in which hummus ceases to become a science, which it has been up to this point with, you know, stuff soaking and cooking, uh, etc. And now it becomes a beautiful art form, like a poem. We're basically going to add, taste, tweak, ad infinitum. The most important ingredient of hummus, other than chickpeas, is tahini or tahina. Tahina is the hummus, what the soul is to the body. Because hummus has so few components, it's important to use the most high-quality ingredients you can. This is not the time for the tahini that you've been trying to get rid of. This is the time to go to the specialty food store and buy the best tahini you can. We'll give this a bit of a, of a blend here. I'm gonna add about, about a cup here of tahini, which is not a little. So, Bulgarian chickpeas, high-quality tahini. The next most important thing is lemon. The lemon is, I think, what separates good hummus from great hummus. You want the tang. You want the acidity. You want the punch. You want probably one to two lemons. And also, if you have it, lemon pepper or lemon salt. Next up, garlic. Liel boils several cloves of garlic with the chickpeas, which mellows the flavor and then adds that to his food processor. I, however, am a garlic fiend, so I'll do that and then also add a clove or two of raw garlic, which gives you a little bit of sharpness. Mouthwash not included. Then it's time to blend. A food processor works best for this. If you, like me, do not own a food processor, a normal blender is fine. And a handheld immersion blender is even better. Reserve some of the cooking liquid from your beans and add that to thin out your hummus as needed. All right, but I'm impatient. You blend for about a minute, and then you must taste. You cannot not taste. 
because the process of adjusting and tweaking and seasoning is a delicate art and not I nor anyone can tell you the exact measurement to get the correct balance of salt and acidity. So season to taste with more lemon, salt, garlic, or tahini as needed. Finish with a little bit of cumin and measure with your heart. We're getting somewhere very interesting. Taste. What do you think? I, for my palate, would add more lemon and more salt. You're absolutely correct on both counts. Amazing. After slaving in the kitchen with Liel, only taking a break in the middle to go pray mincha together, I realized something. The reason that my hummus didn't turn out well the first 10 times I made it is because I didn't have anyone to teach it to me. There are certain foods that you can and should make from a recipe. Bread, souffle, pastries. But there are other foods that you'll never get right until someone passes what they've already learned on to you. It's a feel and it's an art. And it's why we need mentors and teachers, which is the most Jewish thing of all. There are base level instructions, like mash up a bunch of chickpeas or thou shalt not kill, but the spark comes from interpretation. We don't learn from strict guidelines. We learn from challenging and testing and questioning and tasting. There are foods that, like our faith, need to be passed down, father to son, mother to daughter, legume guru to bean disciple. And hummus is one of them. You need a platonic ideal to emulate and someone to show you how to get there. Liel showed me, and now I'm showing you. Make it however tastes best to you, and if you're eating hummus Israeli style, then you eat it for breakfast. Top your hummus with some olive oil, sliced red onions, hard-boiled eggs, schug, which is a Yemenite hot pepper paste, leftover whole chickpeas, and maybe some pickles. Eat it with pita bread, a spoon, your hands. We won't judge. Our Gentile of the Week is Eric Huang. He is the chef behind the fried chicken pop-up Pecking House. He's also an alumnus of 11 Madison Park, the famous fine dining establishment, who pivoted to fried chicken during the pandemic. And he talked with us about the story behind his success and which Jewish culinary staples he could take or leave. Listen to our conversation with Eric Huang. Eric, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like you had a very eventful pandemic. Is that an understatement, uh, work-wise? Yes, perhaps an understatement. I had just left my position as a sous chef at Love Madison Park in January 2020 to finally open my own restaurant after 10 years of working in fine dining. And we encountered a minor obstacle, obviously, and uh, ended up opening a restaurant just Absolutely not the one I had envisioned doing so. And uh, yes, it's been a very busy pandemic. <laughs> to those of our listeners who, unlike myself, uh, whose lives don't revolve almost entirely around food, people were lined up on crazy waiting lists to to receive an opportunity to taste your amazing chicken, which I will confirm is indeed out of this world. Amazing. You've created a, a kosher version of it for a Christmas dinner that we have curated at Tablet Magazine. How did, the, how did this idea of a, of a chicken wait list come about? You know, I get that question a lot, obviously, and people think it was something I 
masterfully intended and used as a brilliant marketing strategy. The real answer is I have no idea how to build a website. And I was the only person working there, you know, working at my, my family's restaurant. And we got crushed by a little press hit from time out. And there was obviously no way I was going to be able to meet all that myself. So the only way to kind of restrict people's ordering and getting into the website was with the password. And I totally didn't mean it to be like this big marketing ploy, but everyone is very fixated on it. And it, we did get a waitlist that, you know, ballooned to thousands of people. And that was never my intention, but it was pretty cool and was very fun. And, you know, I guess now I'm the waitlist chicken guy. It's like getting on a list at a party. No, it was, it was a chicken speakeasy is what it was. You know, you had to know a guy who knew a guy. You get to the door and, and you say, I know Huang. And they, they're like, Huang doesn't know you. You are Everyone's lying, <laughs> pretending they went to high school with you. <laughs> So tell us so tell us what happened. You you take over your parents' restaurant. I mean, how did how did that come to be? I mean, how did you have that idea and how did you execute it? Um, so this didn't start until September of 2020. I was helping my mother out at her restaurant in Long Island. You know, just learning to make them some doing dumplings and helping her out. And then I did some private chef work in the Hamptons. And then my uncle had been running this Queen's restaurant, you know, for the last like 15, 20 years. And, you know, he was unfortunately unable to remain open during the pandemic. There was not a lot of delivery in his area. So it was closed. And they kind of approached me. I was like, you ever want to like try working here and, you know, just playing around? It's like, it could be your restaurant. Like, and at the time that idea was, you know, it seemed amazing. I was like, oh, wow, this whole space to myself. So yeah, it became a thing <laughs> unintentionally. Hold on. I, I, I want to slow things down here a little bit because I'm thinking about you, right? And you grow up around restaurants and, you know, you're familiar with them. You're working in them. Then you get to 11 Madison. I mean, really, the absolute pinnacle of whole cuisine in America. So then I imagine going back from this with dreams of opening your own fancy place to like, well, you know, yeah, you could you could be back in the you know family restaurant kitchen. Was that, what, a relief, a letdown, a frustration? How did you feel about that? You know, at the time, I was actually really relieved. I didn't like private chef work. I, it just kind of bummed me out, and it just wasn't what I wanted to do. It was great in the sense that it was relaxing and then made a little egg for myself that I could try picking house and take a, take a leap on it with. But before that I had been working with my mother and I don't work that well with my mother. <laughs> There's a lot of very small restaurant in Long Island. So busy. It was so busy in the beginning of the pandemic. It was really difficult. So this idea of this serene, quiet, empty restaurant to myself was really exciting. As we got in there, it became less exciting. You know, it hasn't really been updated or taken care of much since I was born. Um, I think that was literally when the last operation was, was 1986. So when we got in there, I was like, wow, this place is really falling apart. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of how the fried chicken happened, really. I mean, it was, I had tested a bunch of recipes, but the fryers were really the only thing that worked reliably. So <laughs> forced our hand. I was like, I guess that's what we're making. So how are you, how'd you make the fried chicken? Like what, what went into it? So it was kind of a, you know, again, whenever I kind of rehashed the whole origin story of Peking House, I wish, you know, it sounded like I knew what I was doing and I had a very purposeful vision for everything, but it seemed very accidental. That's just how I know how to fry chicken. You know, I learned that in culinary school, just a very traditional Southern style fried chicken with buttermilk marinade, perhaps the unusual part being the addition of flour during the marinating process. But, you know, I thought to add some Asian flavors there. Five Spice is always like such a good flavor to pair with any kind of protein. And then the the hot part, the chili paste that goes on it, you know, I was watching videos of Nashville hot chicken and, you know, it was just cayenne pepper and oil, which is just a one dimensional hot. It was almost a masochistic kind of thing. It was like mental, I kind of hurt you. 
So I thought like, why don't we try to balance that a little more, add some more seasonings and flavors and things like that. And so I toyed around with the chili paste for a while and it just kind of came together one day and I was like, Hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> so uh, we decided to figure it out. I have a sort of a meta question. When we think about chefs, right? We think almost, I think in like three big eras, right? There was a time not that long ago in which no one knew a single chef's name. You guys were cooks in the kitchen, maybe two or three, like the Jacques Pepin were famous, but it was whatever you went to a restaurant to go to the restaurant. Then all of a sudden there's the age of the chef as rock star, the Anthony Bourdain's of this world, the Mario Batali's, like right, the big, big kind of names that everyone reveres and they have shows on cooking channels, et cetera. And now it seems to me like we're almost at a point of a, of a, of a third wave, right? There's some kind of saturation and people are already a little bit weary and tired of this celebrity chef game. H- how do you see this landscape and, and where are you in it? Well, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I was caught in the beginning of that phase where, you know, the rock star chef was becoming a thing. You know, Anthony Bourdain, Gordon Ramsay, and, you know, all those names you just mentioned. Uh, that was what really romanticized it and kind of got me into it. And there was that huge swell and there's, you know, statistics to back it up that culinary school enrollment was at its apex in that era, kind of, you know, between 2007 and 2010. I'm not too proud to say that I was very caught up in that and that seemed very romantic and I was in university at the time. I had no idea what I was doing in my life. I just knew that sitting at a desk made me want to like bang my head against the wall. So it seemed like a great idea to get into cooking. And, you know, we saw very quickly that drop off because all these kind of romantics and, you know, excited youths that wanted to get into it to be Anthony Bourdain, and they realized the reality of the restaurant is rather difficult. So Eric, you grew up on Long Island, you know, from Jews. What was your first exposure to Jewish food? Like, is there some Jewish food experiences you remember? Let's see. Yes. I I grew up in a Iranian Jewish neighborhood and, you know, all the mothers there lovingly cooked Persian food all the time and it smelled great. But I would say my first experience was, I think I went to a movie with one of my friends and his mom was driving us around and we stopped at a deli and we had a knish. And then I was like, oh, this is like a lot of potato. (laughs) (laughs) It's good, but it's like a lot. You know, it's it's a solid puck of potato. So I'm going to I'm going to crusade against the bagel, which I believe is something that, you know, we contributed to America as Jews. America took it lovingly and then turned it into the sort of stuff that you can now find, you know, a very shitty version of in an airport in Des Moines. Therefore, I'm happy to declare it. It's no longer Jewish food. Question for you. When you go to an airport and you see a Panda Express... <laughs> Is there a part of you that says, you know what, eh, not, that's not mine anymore. You, you want lo mein? Go ahead. I mean, it's not, I don't consider this Chinese food anymore. That's a great question. And it's something I've thought about a lot. And I, yeah, you're right. I mean, the bagel is kind of overrepresented now. I, you know, Panda Express, you know, started by a Chinese family. I'm pretty confident. And like, they had all the right intentions. And <laughs> I don't think it's like bad. I just think it's different. You know, I just think it's very intensely marketed and it's a very specific thing. Um, would I call it Chinese food? I would call it Chinese American food an interpretation of. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't like feel ashamed by it. You know, I think like that's like kind of the main thing people want to argue about all the time. I think people are getting better about it now. But when I was a kid, this was like the argument all the time. It's that the, the kind of Chinese American cooking you're doing is like not authentic which, you know, authenticity in this regard, I think is like a moot point. It's, it's like authentic to what, you know, it's, it's a cuisine onto its own. It's a, it's the story of Chinese diaspora in America as like, it's not supposed to be Chinese food in China. Right. So it's like very different, but you know, do I relinquish 
some things that I think are overplayed. Yeah, like I'm not down with fortune cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really get it. And I hate that they're so heavily associated with Chinese food. I would also say this idea of like the, the, the fried chicken wing fried rice combo is like, I, I don't think that's bad. Obviously, I love fried chicken and I love fried rice, but that it's like this, it should be $5 everywhere and immune to inflation is just like really like frustrating. <laughs> uh, and it's usually poorly done which is also sad and people think like this neon yellow rice with this like very suspect fried chicken is like Chinese food is kind of maybe something I'm willing to let go whenever you're willing to trade we'll give you the bagel we'll take the fortune cookie yeah the history is a very interlinked there with the Jewish food and the Chinese American food so yeah there's a lot of things to do <laughs> so Eric you brought us a very a controversial take on Jewish food okay so I think I had I had prefaced this in my email that, you know, obviously I grew up in Long Island and I, I dated a Jewish woman for a really long time. I never really had Kugel until uh, I visited her family and everyone was so stoked about it. And I was just <laughs> not, I did not get it. <laughs> your, question, your, your Gentile of the Week question is basically Kugel, colon, what the fuck? Uh, is it dessert? Is it No, I, honestly, I'm so with you there. Now, the, the real, the Kugelisti will talk about, oh, well, they'll, they'll probably want to know, did you have sweet Kugel? Was there, were there raisins? Was there honey? Was there, like, was it egg Kugel? Was it the noodle, potato? The bottom line is, yeah, it's not that good. It's no one's, it's never the go-to dish. It's always a kind of your third best side. Producer Robert here. In their excitement to trash Kugel, the hosts forgot to say what it is. I'm going to tell you, since I just learned myself. Kugel is a baked casserole typically made from egg noodles or potatoes that can be made either sweet or savory using different ingredients. And it's a staple of Ashkenazi holiday cooking. Back to the takes. We're going to get lots of mail from people actually know what they're talking about. But you know what? I think it must orig have originated in some sort of, as a way to use up certain cheap starches. Yeah, anyone who's famous for their kugel is a bad chef. I'll go on, on the line and say that. But I'm, I'm with you there. I don't know. I don't know if Leo and Stephanie would disagree. Here's the defense of, of the lowly kugel. So there is a place in Brooklyn that is sort of a central kitchen for the, uh, for the Chabad Lubavitch community. And you walk in, it's a miraculous place. It's in this nondescript house. It's not a restaurant or anything. You have to know it. And you walk in and there's a, basically like a wall of kugels, right? And as you contemplate which to get, you're asked the central question, which, which now I think roots us back in the conversation and, and we'll tell you why I love it so much, which is, what are you going to drink tonight? Is it going to be whiskey? Is it going to be vodka? Because one goes really well with salt and pepper and potatoes, and the other goes, you know, kind of nice with noodles and a little bit more of a sweetness to it. The point is that it's basically a huge starch-based alcohol absorption system, the likes of which the world has never seen. Wow. It's just incredible. Oh, to me, at least. That's my personal so, take. Okay, here's the thing. There's the sweet and the savory. Like, sweet kugel does confuse me. I don't understand why pasta should be sweet. Yeah, sweet kugel is basically you. You you should have just made a really good like French toast, a challah French toast. Basically. Right, <laughs> that's what you should have done. Like I don't know why you didn't do that, but that's what you should have done. It's pasta casserole meets French toast, and I was just like, well, well, what? Which one is it? Like what? <laughs> Chicken Meister Eric Wong, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. Oh, uh, thank you. Oh, I was just gonna say, once upon a time, I had a restaurant concept that was gonna be a deli by day and a Chinese restaurant by night, and call it General Shalom's. I love this idea. Thanks, man. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for having me.
Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? So this weekend after camping, I participated in the Jewish Leadership Conference. And after the conference- The, the jolk. The jolk. The jolk. Two young people come to see me. Young leaders. And they are the most perfect specimens of humanity. If you could send like two humans to space to represent the species, <laughs> like this, this young woman and this young man looked exactly like this. And the young woman comes up and said, excuse me, sir, could we talk to you? It's like, sir, like, are you like serving me papers? <laughs> are you from the government? Like, this is really weird. And then they <laughs> identify themselves. That's basically her way of saying, excuse me, man, who's much older than I am. Exactly. But here's why they spoke in such a great, respectful manner, because as they soon identify themselves, they are two of the approximately 100 Jewish cadets at West Point. And they said they're very big fans of the show, and they've come for, among other speakers, to hear me speak, and we're so excited to meet. And then I had the privilege of speaking with these two amazing young people who are here and serving our country and hearing a little bit about life and Jewish life at West Point. So I, I regretfully uh, don't remember their names, although I did give them my email, and I really hope that they email me. But I want to wish a hearty mazel tov to all Jewish cadets at West Point and to David Frummer, the Jewish chaplain at West Point. Go Army, beat Navy. Big mazel tov from all of us. We join you in that. Liel, I'm so I'm always so touched to hear you refer to the United States as our country when you say serving our country. We, 100%. We are waiting for you to fill out your citizenship papers. Just sign on the dotted line. Being an American is not about citizenship. It's about commitment. We will be there with you when you take the pledge. There's the a big quiz, a plunge. There, <laughs> you should say, I will not swear. I don't I do not do oaths or swear in a Bible. I will have immerse. And where is he going to immerse the most American? Like we have to find the spot for his the immersion. The reflecting pool on the mall in Washington. He just has to throw himself If in. I will. It'll the be a very short pool outside moment. Cinderella's castle in Disney World. It's way <laughs> it's, more it's American. true America. <laughs> that is amazing. I have two muzzle tubs, one to my grandma, Grandma Seal. It's her birthday today and she is awesome. It's also flag day. Happy Flag Day to all of us. And we have a mazel tov to our managing producer, Sara Fredman Ader's mother, Adina Fredman, who got her rabbinic ordination from Yeshivat Maharat. And we just say mazel tov to you. Simen tov, mazel tov, mazel tov, tov. My mazel tov this week is to the Weinstock Silvermans. They had a baby. I'm a few weeks behind the times here. The baby was about three weeks ago when uh, Ilan Weinstock and Sarah Silverman, friends of mine, had their baby. The The baby naming was uh, now about two weeks ago, I guess. Geffen Silverman has joined us in this world. Uh, beautiful baby naming. Got to meet Elan's father, Dove Weinstock, who's a big fan of the show. It was a beautiful event. So mazel tov to the whole Weinstock, Silverman, Silverstock family on, the, on welcoming a new baby girl, Geffen. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We are produced and edited by Josh Karaz, Robert Scaramucci, and Quinn Waller. And the team includes Sara Fredman Ader, daughter of Rabanit or Rabah Adina Fredman, Daron Rusquet, Tanya Singer, Sam Hacker, and many others. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can get our swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Episode art every week is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. If you want to send us presents, gifts, um, cards, you can write to us at P.O. Box 20079-991001. Rabbinic supervision this week by the alliteratively named Rabbi Barry Block at Congregation B'nai Israel in Little Rock, Arkansas. We come to you from the hummus-filled kitchen of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.
could we auction off to listeners like for a certain amount you get to camp with us? So this is like the parent trap? Are three listeners coming along? Sure. Josh Josh and Quinn are like, no. Uh, 